Appalachia. Appalachia is a very distinct word, and everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Moreover, though, whether it's right or wrong, it stirs up images of everything from indescribable mountaintop beauty, deep forest, and cabins in the wood to trailer parks, meth heads, extreme prejudice, and xenophobia. The fact that one word can bring up such a huge response is an owed to its far-reaching influence in society. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed what can only be described as horrendous, demeaning, and even downright unbelievable history as we are now learning every day is not exactly what we've been told and what was once thought to be nothing more than fairy tale is now coming to light as truth. I often hear references to the movie Deliverance or people making funny banjo sounds when describing the Appalachians. I, being born and raised in these mountains, know that nothing in fact could be more wrong or, in some cases, more right. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has been around longer than any place in the United States. In fact, far longer than the United States itself. We'll look into these mountains and learn about the good, the bad, and the ugly history that lies within them to this very day. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Welcome back, my good friends, and give me a listen, if you don't mind, as I tell you the tale of how during the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, an old boy from the Appalachian Mountains wound up right in the middle of a struggle for world dominance. In autumn of 1911, the Consolidation Coal Company purchased the current location of Jenkins, Kentucky, as part of a $100,000 tract of land in Pike, Letcher, and Floyd counties from the Northern Coal and Coke Company. After the acquisition was finalized, plans were made to extend the Lexington and Eastern Railroad from Jackson to a town named McRoberts. The plans also included the establishment of the town of Jenkins for George C. Jenkins, one of the Consolidation Coal Company's directors. Because of the need for hundreds of homes and other structures, nine sawmills and Two brickyards were erected, and a dynamo was built to temporarily generate power for the houses. Next, a temporary narrow-gauge railroad was built over Pike Mountain from Glamorgan, Virginia, to carry supplies to further the development of the town. Jenkins City government was established as soon as the business and land were put up for sale. The company even went so far as to supply the town with its own marshals to enforce the law. Jenkins was finally incorporated in January 9th of 1912. This town will become home to Oliver Winfield Powers, who was a coal miner, and his wife Ida Melinda Powers. On August 17th, 1929, they celebrated the birth of their second child, Francis Gary Powers, who would 
turn out to be the couple's only son of six children. The family soon moved to Pound, Virginia, where it was just across the border from Jenkins, and was yet another mining town. Because of the hardships associated with living in such a town, his father wanted his son Gary to become a doctor. He hoped his son would achieve the higher earnings of that profession and felt that this would involve less hardships than any other job in his hometown. Gary would go on to receive a bachelor's degree from Milligan College in Tennessee in June of 1950, and instead of pursuing further college education, he enlisted in the United States Air Force in October. He was commissioned as a second lieutenant in December of 1952. After completing his advanced training with the United States Air Force pilot training class 52H at Williams Air Force Base in Arizona, Gary was then assigned to the 468th Strategic Fighter Squadron at Turner Air Force Base, Georgia, as an F-84 Thunderjet pilot. The Republic F-84 Thunderjet was a straight-wing turbojet fighter bomber, originating as a 1944 United States Army Air Force's proposal for a day fighter. The F-84 first flew in 1946, although it didn't enter service until 1947. The Thunderjet was plagued by so many structural and engine problems that a 1948 U.S. Air Force review declared it unable to execute any aspect of its intended mission and considered canceling the program. The aircraft was not considered fully operational until the 1949 F-84D model, and the design matured only with the definitive F-84G introduced in 1951. And Gary was right in the middle of all this redevelopment of the F-84. On April 2, 1955, Gary married Barbara Gay Moore in Newman, Georgia, and in January of 1956, he was recruited by the CIA at the civilian grade of GS-12. In May of 1956, he began U-2 training in Watership Strip in Nevada. His training was complete by August 1956, and his unit, the 2nd Weather Observational Squadron, or as it was known, Detachment 1010, was deployed to in Sirlik Air Force Base in Turkey. By 1960, Gary was already a veteran of many covert aerial reconnaissance missions. Family members believed that he was a NASA weather reconnaissance pilot, which was exactly what the CIA wanted everybody to think. Truth be known, U-2 pilots flew espionage missions over altitudes of about 70,000 feet, supposedly above the reach of Soviet air defenses. The U-2 was equipped with a state-of-the-art camera designed to take high-resolution photos from the stratosphere over hostile countries, including the Soviet Union. U-2 missions systematically photographed military installations and other important sites in an effort to try to make sure that the Soviet Union wasn't up to no good. In fact, the primary mission of the U-2 was overflying the Soviet Union. Soviet intelligence had been aware of encroaching U-2 flights at least since 1958, if not earlier, but lacked any effective countermeasure to stop it. Well, that was until 1960. 
On May 1st, 1960, Gary's U-2A departed from the military air base in Peshawar, Pakistan, with support from the U.S. Air Station in Batabar. This was to be the first attempt to fly all the way across the Soviet Union, but it was considered worth the rest. The planned route would take Gary deeper into Russia than any other U-2 pilot ever ever flown and directly over important targets never before photographed. When Gary reached the air base over Sverdlitsk, MiG-19s were sent to intercept the U-2, but were unable to reach his altitude. The newly developed Soviet aircraft, the Su-9, did reach his altitude, but due to the difference in the speed of the aircraft, the Su-9 was unable to follow its instructions to ram Gary's U-2. The Soviets then fired a total of 14 S-75 Venice surface-to-air missiles at the U-2, one of which took out their own MiG airplane. Though the pilot, Sergei Safranov, ejected, he later died of his injuries. As Gary flew his U-2 over airspace in Kozolina, the Ural region, three S-75 Venice were launched at his airplane with the first one hitting the aircraft. As Gary stated, what was left of the plane began spinning, only upside down with the nose pointed upward toward the sky, the tail down toward the ground. Gary was unable to activate the plane's self-destruct mechanism before he was thrown out of the plane after releasing the canopy in his seatbelt. While coming down under his parachute, Gary had time to shred and throw away his escape map and get rid of part of his suicide device, which was a silver dollar coin that he wore around his neck, which contained a pen for injection. He was still hopeful of being able to escape at this point. He hit the ground hard and was immediately captured and taken to Lubyanka Prison in Moscow. Gary did see the second parachute landing in the ground and it was some distance away and very high and a lone red and white parachute's what it was. Likely this was a U-2 easing softly toward the ground instead of being destroyed as was the plan and that wasn't good. The U-2s were equipped with such a parachute to slow the plane after landing. Now it would prevent it from being destroyed only for it all to fall into Soviet hands. The U.S. government of course lied that the weather plane had strayed off course after its pilot had difficulties with his oxygen equipment. What CIA officials didn't realize was that the plane, just as Gary thought, had crashed almost fully intact with the Soviet unions had recovered the pilot and all and the plane's equipment, including its top-secret high-altitude camera. This is what's referred to in the Appalachian Mountains as an old AMF yo-yo. That stands for adios, my friend, you're on your own. This is Gary was interrogated extensively by the KGB for months before he made a confession and a public apology for his part in the espionage, which was forced out of him. Finally, after all of the lying and deceit by the politicians involved in the whole mess, the White House came clean about the capture of Gary Powers by the Soviet Union, but it didn't come without a highly controlled narrative. Following admission by the White House that Gary indeed had been captured alive, 
American media depicted Gary in heroic terms as an all-American pilot who never drank or touched alcohol. In fact, Gary drank and smoked. After all, what member of any branch of our military doesn't? At least that was the way it was in my day. The CIA urged that his wife Barbara be given sedatives before speaking to the press and that they gave her strict talking points that she was to repeat and not stray from to portray her as a devoted wife. Her broken leg, according to the CIA, this information that she was to parrot was the result of a water skiing accident when in fact her leg had been broken after she had too much to drink and fell over while dancing with another man. Of course, despite everything that the government did and said, the whole thing didn't go without political consequence either. That incident set back talks between Khrushchev and Eisenhower, and Gary's interrogations ended on June 30th, and his solitary confinement ended on July 9th. On August 17, 1960, his trial began for espionage before the military division of the Supreme Court of the USSR. Lieutenant General Vrzgmortlebsky, Major General Vorobiev, and Major General Zakharov presided. Roman Rudinko acted as prosecutor in the capacity of Prosecutor General of the Soviet Union. Mikhail Grinev served as Gary's defense counsel. In attendance were his parents and sister and his wife Barbara and her mother. His father brought along an attorney, Carl McAfee, while the CIA provided two additional attorneys, which was mighty nice of them. During the course of his trial, Gary confessed to the charges against him and apologizes for, apologized for violating Soviet airspace to spy on the Soviets. Left alone to try to survive the ordeal, what else was he going to do? In the wake of his apology, American media shifted and began depicting Gary as a coward and even as a symptom of the decay of America's moral character. There's a fine thank you for your service. In reality, which the press until this very day know little about, Gary had lied to limit the information he shared with the KGB to that which could be determined from the remains of his plane and wreckage. Being that they had the whole thing laying right there on the ground to pilfer through, I doubt there was much he could do on that front. He was hampered by information appearing in the Western press also. Once again, the news media, hard at work, the KGB major stated, there's no reason for you to withhold information, we'll find it out anyway, your press will give it to us. However, he limited his divulging of CIA contacts to one individual with a pseudonym of Collins. At the same time, he repeatedly stated that the maximum altitude for the U-2 was 68,000 feet, which in reality was significantly lower than its actual flight ceiling. On August 19, 1960, Gary was convicted of espionage, which was, and still is, a grave crime in Russia. He was sentenced, however, to 10 years confinement, three of which were to be in prison, with the remainder in a labor camp. The U.S. Embassy News Bulletin stated that, according to Gary, as far as the government was concerned, I had acted in accordance with the instructions given me and would receive my full salary while in prison. Well, that's nice.
Overall, though, it was much more lenient than it could have been. After all, the USSR was known for executing people for far less. He was then held in Vladimir Central Prison, about 150 miles east of Moscow, in building number two, starting in September 9, 1960. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Now Gary's cellmate was Ziggers Kremins a Latvian political prisoner, and Gary kept a diary and a journal while in prison. Additionally, he learned carpet weaving from his cellmate to pass the time. In addition, he could send and receive a limited number of letters to and from his family. In late 1961, talks began of a possible prisoner exchange between the Soviets and the U.S. They offered to exchange Gary for KGB Colonel William Fisher, the CIA, and in particular Chief CIA and Counterintelligence James Angleton, opposed exchanging the Soviet KGB Colonel for Gary. The Colonel, also known as Rudolph Abel, had been caught by the FBI, tried and jailed for espionage. First, Chief Angleton believed that Gary may have deliberately defected to the Soviet side. CIA documents released in 2010 indicate that the U.S. officials didn't believe actually Gary's account of the incident at the time because it was contradicted by a classified National Security Agency report, which alleged that the U-2 had descended from 65,000 to 34,000 feet before changing course and departing from radar. That NSA report remains classified to this day, though. Doesn't matter much, though. Chief Angleton figured Gary had already revealed all he knew to the Soviets, and he reasoned that he was now pretty much worthless to the U.S. On the other hand, according to Chief Angleton, William Fisher had revealed very little to the CIA, refusing to disclose even his real name, and for this reason, William Fisher was still of potential value. However, 
Gary's wife, Barbara, was often seen drinking and having affairs. On June 22, 1961, she was pulled over the po- by the police for driving erratically and well under the or over the alcohol limit. To avoid bad publicity for the wife of the well-known CIA operative, doctors tasked by the CIA to keep Barbara out of the limelight arranged to have her committed to a psychiatric ward in Augusta, Georgia, under strict supervision. She was eventually released to the care of her mother, but the CIA feared that Gary, who was still languishing in a Soviet prison, might learn of Barbara's illicit activities. As a result, he may reach the state of depression, causing him to just spill his guts to the Soviet Union. So, in the long run, Barbara unwittingly may have aided the cause of the approval of the prisoner exchange involving her husband and William Fisher. Chief Angleton and others in the CIA still opposed the exchange, but President John F. Kennedy stepped up and approved it. On February 10, 1962, Gary was quietly pulled from the prison and exchanged along with U.S. student Frederick Pryor for William Fisher in a well-publicized spy swap at the Glenicky Bridge in Berlin. That was the impetus for all of these movie and TV scenes where you see the Soviets on one side of the bridge with the U.S. on the other side watching as the prisoners make their way across the opposite direction, passing each other in the fog under the dark of night. Gary always credited his father with the swap idea. When released, Gary's total time in captivity was one year, nine months, and ten days. He initially received a cold reception on his return home. He was criticized for not activating his aircraft self-destruct charge to destroy the camera, photographic film, and related classified parts. He was also criticized for not using a CIA suicide pill to kill himself because we all know that the CIA is much more important than human life itself, right? He was debriefed extensively by the CIA, the Lockheed Corporation, and the Air Force after which a statement was issued by the CIA director, John McCone, that Mr. Powers lived up to the terms of his employment and instructions in the connection with his mission and his obligations as an American. On March 6, 1962, he appeared before a Senate Armed Services Select Committee hearing charged by or chaired by Senator Russell, which included Senator Prescott Bush, Leverett Stalt, Robert Byrd, Margaret Chase, Smith, and Strom Thurmond, along with Barry Goldwater. During the hearing, Senator Saltonstall stated, I commend you as a courageous, fine young American citizen who lived up to their instructions and who did the best you could under very difficult circumstances. Senator Bush declared that I am satisfied he has conducted himself in exemplary fashion and in accordance with the highest traditions of service that one could give to their country. Senator Goldwater sent him a handwritten note. You did a good job for your country. Of course, even being in a Soviet prison didn't keep Gary from learning of what his wife Barbara had been up to. So he and Barbara separated in 1962 and divorced in January 1963. Gary stated that the reasons for the divorce included her infidelity and alcoholism, added that, and he added that she constantly threw tantrums and overdosed on pills. 
shortly after his return. He started a relationship with Claudia Edwards, Sue Downey, whom he had met while working briefly at CIA headquarters. Ms. Downey had a child, Dee, from a previous marriage, and they were married on October 26, 1963. Their son, Francis Gary Powers, Jr., was born on June 5, 1965. The marriage proved to be a very happy one, and Sue worked hard to preserve Gary's legacy. During a speech in March of 1964, former CIA Director Alan Dulles said that if Gary, he performed his duty in a very dangerous mission, and he performed it well. And I think I know more about that than some of the, his distractors and critics know. And I'm glad to say that I'm here tonight to speak on his behalf. Gary worked for Lockheed as a test pilot from 1962 to 1970. Though the CIA actually paid his salary, in 1970 he wrote a book, Operation Overflight, with co-author Kurt Gentry that told the tale of his being shot down, capture, and imprisonment. And that's when Lockheed fired him because the book's publication had ruffled some feathers at Langley. Gary then became a helicopter traffic reporting pilot for Los Angeles radio station KGIL. After that, he became a helicopter news reporter for KNBC News Channel 4. And then on August 1, 1977, Gary was piloting a helicopter for KNBC over the San Fernando Valley on when the aircraft crashed, killing him and his cameraman, George Spears. They had been recording video following brush fires in Santa Barbara County in the chopper and were heading back to the home base. His Bell 206 Jet Ranger helicopter ran out of fuel and crashed at the Sepulveda Dam recreational area in Encito, California, several miles short of the intended landing site. The National Transportation Safety Board report attributed the probable cause of the crash to pilot error. According to Gary's son and aviation mechanic who had had come along and repaired a faulty fuel gauge without telling Gary, who in turn misread it. At the last moment of the crash, Gary noticed children playing in the area and directed the chopper elsewhere to avoid landing on them. He had not done that. It would likely have landed safely. The last second deviation compromised his auto-rotative descent, which uh, is actually more effective than gliding a plane in for a landing truth be known. Gary was survived by his wife, children Claudia D. and Francis Gary Powers Jr. and five sisters. He is buried in Arlington National Cemetery as an Air Force veteran. Gary received the CIA's Intelligence Star in 1965 after his return from the Soviet Union. He was originally scheduled to receive it in 1963, along with other pilots involved in the CIA's U-2 program, but the award was postponed for, you guessed it, political reasons. In 1998, newly declassified information revealed that Gary's mission had been a joint U.S. Air Force-CIA operation. In 2000, on the 40th anniversary of the U-2 incident, his family was presented with his posthumously awarded Prisoner of War Medal, Distinguished Flying Cross, and National Defense Service Medal. In addition, CIA Director George Tennant 
authorized Gary to possibly receive the CIA's coveted director medal for extreme fidelity and extraordinary courage in the line of duty. On June 15, 2012, Gary was posthumously awarded the Silver Star Medal for demonstrating exceptional loyalty while enduring harsh interrogation in the LaBianca prison in Moscow for almost two years. U.S. Air Force Chief of Staff General Norton Schwartz presented the decoration to Gary's grandchildren during a Pentagon ceremony. Even the Soviet Union memorialized Gary. The prison where he was housed now contains a small museum with an exhibit on Gary Powers, who allegedly developed a good rapport with the Soviet prisoners there. Some pieces of the plane and Gary's uniform are also on display in the Menino Air Base Museum near Moscow. Gary's son, Gary Jr., founded the Cold War Museum in 1969, or 1996, I should say, I'm sorry, affiliated with the Smithsonian Institution. It was essentially a traveling museum exhibit until it found a permanent home in 2011 on a former Army communications base outside Washington, D.C. Though it was cut short, the life of Francis Gary Powers had a lot crammed into it. Not a bad testament for an old boy from the Appalachian Mountains. I hope you enjoyed our story today. Please go over to our Patreon page and at patreon.com and search Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend and give it a look. If you'd like to join, there are several levers to choose from, at, starting at Mountain Boomer all the way up to Appalachian Hillbilly. Or you can go to Facebook group Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend podcast where we can discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening.